At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to transition to look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 29. A very important section of God's Word, and we're going to investigate it a little more in depth here in just a moment. But inside of those verses, there is conversation about our familial connections. And when I think about the family that I am a part of, I think about the family that I was born into. Uh, This is my, my dad and my mom and my sister. And this picture was taken about five years ago when we were celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. And every time I see this picture, it just reminds me of so many ways that I have been blessed by my parents. Things that I did not earn, but just have been graciously given to me. I grew up in an environment that was loving and supportive, uh, that pointed me in the direction of truth and of life and, and is cheering for me even still today. And I think about that tremendous blessing that has come from my family. Now, when I tell you that story and I talk about my family, I hesitate just a bit. Because when I talk about my family, I know that there are some of you in the room who have not had a family experience like that. You've grown up in a home that has only one parent or no parents, either through an early death or, or through a departure in some way through a different set of circumstances. And you may not have grown up in an environment that was loving and supportive. You may have been absent those things. And I hesitate because when I talk about my experience, I have to recognize the limitations. I cannot invite you all to become a son or daughter of Dick and Bev Robinson. That is a decision that is above my pay grade. I can't offer that to each of you. And so I hesitate to to raise a category that might create some stress that we cannot relieve this morning. But here's what I can do. I can actually point you to something even better. Because as wonderful as it has been in my life to be the son of Dick and Bev Robinson, and it's been wonderful, there is a connection that I have that is even greater. And that is that I am a son of my heavenly father. And though being the son of Dick and Bev Robinson is limited to some, to become a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father is available to all who are in the room today and available to all who are watching and joining us online. And so regardless of your experience, regardless of where you've come from, it is possible for you to have a loving and supportive relationship with a heavenly Father who loves you, who created you, and who longs to relate to you even today. This morning, we're going to see that relationship that we have with God as our heavenly Father and some of what that means as we look at just a few verses at the end of Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, verses 25 through 29. And so if you've got a Bible, you might turn there to Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. I want to read those verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make three observations as we go a little more in depth in this passage. Paul writes to his friends in Galatia, and he says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, friends, in these verses, we see three things about our connection to God as our heavenly Father. What's the first thing that we see? The first thing we see is this. We can become His Son by faith. We can become His Son by faith. Now, we see that as we begin looking at verse 25 a little more in depth. Verse 25 begins with this wonderful connection, but now, but now. What, what the, those words tell us is that something is available to us now that wasn't available to us before. There's the opportunity, even the expectation of change and transformation for each of us in our lives. We, we see that anchored in this, this passage that the, the but now talks about something that happens once faith has come and the time of the guardian is completed. Now, if you're with us last week, you know that that time of the guardian was the time of the Old Testament, the pedagogue or the tutor that was to lead us up to and point us to Christ. That was the purpose of the Old Testament law. And God played that out in history. But Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, because we now live in an era beyond the era of the law, because we now live in an era that is dominated by this concept of faith and talks about the arrival of Jesus Christ, it is possible for us to have transformation in our lives. And friends, today as you and I sit here, we sit on the other side of that. So if it was possible in the era that the Galatians lived, it is definitely possible for us because we still live in the era of Jesus. Remember our document that overviewed salvation history that we've looked at the last couple of weeks? We live in the Jesus gospel era. So transformation is available to you and transformation is available to me. Well, what is that transformation that is available to us? Well, the transformation that is available to us is that we can become sons of God. If we were identified in, by, by our sin in the past, it's possible for us now to be identified by our sonship and our connection to God. That's the transformation that is available to us. Not an object of God's wrath, not held under the conviction and sentence of punishment related to our sin, but now free to relate to God, not as a slave, but as a, a son. Now, how is it that someone becomes a son? Well, someone becomes a son, as it relates to becoming a son of God, through faith. It's not on the basis of our biology. It's on the basis of our theology. It's not on the basis of our genetics. It's on the basis of His grace. How is it that you and I can become connected to God and can rightly call Him our Heavenly Father? It's not because we were born into the right family. It's because God has given us the faith to embrace the gift that He is giving us in Jesus. Now, this is something new in the new way of Jesus. Because what was the predominant understanding in the old way of the law? 
Well, the way that they thought of it in the old way of the law was that genetics were really important, that biology was really important. You know, how do I know that I am the child of Dick and Bev Robinson? Well, biology produced me in that family. And when they looked at their spiritual history, the, the Jewish people recalled all of their biological connections and all of their genetics to argue for their connection to God. That's why at the beginning of our Old Testament books, like the Chronicles, it is full of these lists that say so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so, because those biological connections were important because God was primarily dealing, not exclusively, but primarily dealing in the Old Testament time with one group of people, one ethnicity of people, as he was working the law through the nation of Israel. But now in the new way, We connect to God not on the basis of our genetics. We connect to God not on the basis of our biology, not because we're born into a Christian family. We connect to God on the basis of faith in Christ. And when we trust in Christ, there is a transformation that is available to us where we go from sinner to son, and we are able to relate to Him in that way. Now, when I say that, There's something important for us to see here, and that has to do with this concept of son. You know, even as I began this point, I talk about how we can all become his son by faith, and some of you are going, become his son? Well, I'm a woman. How does this work that I, you would say that I could become his son? Is it an exclusion on my part? Did, Did Paul misspeak when he wrote this statement? And the answer to that is no. It was very intentional, the language that Paul used here. And it's very intentional, the language that I have used so far. So what is the purpose behind it? What's Paul getting at? What does God want us to know? Well, what he wants us to know when he says that we are all sons, when he says all, who was he referring to? All of the believers in Christ in Galatia, many of whom were probably women. He writes to all of the believers in Galatia, and he says, all of us, whether we are a man or a woman, are sons of God. Now, at one level, that's nonsensical for us until we understand the culture into which this was written. You see, in the culture of this era, when the New Testament was written, it was the sons and the sons only who were the heirs of the promise. They they were the heirs of the fortune of the family. The son would receive it, not the daughters. That was the, the culture of the day. And so when when Paul writes to the Galatians, he wants to make sure that they understand that all, either, either men or women, have access to become an heir according to the promise of God. So he calls them all sons. So if we have placed our faith and trust in Christ, then all of us are a son of God in that all of us have become an heir according to the promise of God. Throughout this chapter, we've seen this idea of heirs according to the promise as connecting us to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I will bless you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, that promise that God gave to Abraham was conferred to Jesus, and then that blessing goes to all of those who have trusted in him. 
And so the idea here is that whether we are a man or a woman, if we have trusted in Christ, then we are all heirs according to the promise of God. So it is appropriate for us to say that you and I, regardless of our gender, have the opportunity to become his son by faith. Now, what do we do with that concept? Well, a couple of things I think are important for us to see. The first thing that's important for us to see has to do with those of us in the room who did not come from a family who trusted in Christ. You may have even come from a family that was atheist or a family that followed another religion altogether. And you might have thought that you were excluded from the promise of God or you're going to be second class forever in the church because you did not have the right pedigree early in life. Well, here's the thing. This is what this passage is indicating. If we are in Christ, then we have become a son, not a second-class son, but we've become a son of God. And so there is hope and opportunity available to each and every one of us, regardless of our background. But here's what else that means. What else that means is even for those who grew up inside of the church, it's important for you to also place your faith and trust in Christ. That your salvation is not guaranteed because your parents were Jesus followers or your sister or your brother. But it's important for you and you personally to place your faith in Christ. Because how is it that we become a son? How is it that we become an heir of the promise? Not by our biology, but by theology. Not by our genetics, but by His grace. And so we embrace by faith what God has done for us. That's why in our children's ministry and in our student ministry, we regularly invite children to, and, and students to place their faith and trust in Christ because we believe that they need to embrace Christ themselves. It's why in a few weeks when we have a, a baptism service, there'll be a number of young people on this stage professing their faith in Christ and being baptized. It's because it's important for us each to own that step ourselves. And so the, the action point question for us is, if we long to become his son, then we need to just recognize that it begins by placing our faith in Christ. His death on the cross as the payment for our sins. Then we have the hope of eternity. We are recipients as an heir of the promise. That's the first thing that we see in these verses. But there's a second thing that we need to see. And that second thing we need to see is this, to put on Christ in baptism. To put on Christ in baptism. Now, earlier in our service today, we, we sang the song, In Christ Alone. That wasn't an accident. We sang that song on purpose. Because as we sang that song, we reminded ourselves again and again and again of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, to be a little Christ, to be a, a Christ follower. It means that we are finding our identity, our hope, and our direction in Christ alone. This thought is pervasive inside of this passage. Just look at the number of times that phrase is used or phrases like it. It says, in Christ Jesus, we're sons of God. In, into Christ, we've been baptized. We are to put on Christ. We are one in Christ, and we are Christ's. Again and again and again, this concept of being in Christ is being driven to us. It is the most foundational thing. If, if somebody were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Very simply, you could say, to be a Christian is to be one who is in Christ. 
I've become in Christ as I have placed my faith in him. But what is this concept of being in Christ and how do we translate that into action that we are a part of inside of this passage? Well, there's something important for us to see. Paul here describes how we are to put on Christ. We are to put on Christ. Now, what is this idea? Well, it's this idea of of getting dressed in Jesus. Now, I'm looking around the room right now, and everybody got dressed this morning. Good job. Well done. Right? You probably didn't even think about it. You might have thought about which of the things you want to put on your body, but you did not legitimately, you know, decide, am I going to put clothes on today? You got dressed out of instinct and habit and pattern, and we are thankful for that. (laughs) But when you got dressed, you you put on, so we're we're used to this idea of this kind of repeated activity. But there's also times where getting dressed or putting something on has a, a big signifier that you're becoming a part of something. You know, if you're on a team and you put the jersey on, you're representing that you're a part of that team. Putting it on is, is symbolic of your participation with that group. If you get married, you, you put, a, put a ring on it, right? It's a representation of your connection. And so sometimes we put things on and it's a little more significant. We have symbols in our culture like a wedding ring that help remind us of that. Well, there were symbols in the Galatian culture that helped them rem- be reminded of that. One of those big symbols was the symbol of the placing of a toga on a young person as they became a man. If a dad had a son, when that son was young, the son would wear young people clothing. But there came a point when that son would become a man. And when the son became a man, the father in this area of Galatia would take a toga and place it on that son as a symbolic recognition of him becoming a man. Did the toga make the child a man? No, but the toga was a reminder of it. You might think of it in our culture. These are some bad analogies, but we might do something like this. When your child turns 16 and the first time you take the keys to the Honda Accord out and you hand them over and say, you can drive the car to Homeland, right? It's a, it's a, it's a signifier that you're offering a trust. You're transitioning to some adult responsibility. The first time they had access to the family credit card, the first time they had access to the bank account. These transitions that happened as you went from a child to a man were signified in some way in their culture and in ours. In the Galatian culture, it was signified when they put on the toga. But when Paul writes here to the Christians, he says, I want you to know, friends, that you have become adult sons of God heirs according to the promise, and we remember that transition from the child under the law to the son in Christ in a very particular way. Well, how do we remember it? What do we put on? Well, we put on baptism. Water baptism becomes the picture of the transition from a child to an adult, from sinner to son. It happens through faith in Christ, but it's remembered through water baptism. Now, Paul talks here about the beginning of our relationship with Christ in putting on baptism. And it's important to remember what we put on. 
what we remember as we are connected to Christ. Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The the picture of baptism is, is one of being connected with the death of Christ. When somebody goes down under the water in baptism... It's a reminder of us being connected to the death of Christ, his death paying the penalty for our sins. But when he comes back up out of the water, we're reminded that Jesus rose from the dead and offers us newness of life as well. And so baptism becomes like a wedding ring or like a toga to a child, an outward symbol of the internal transformation that has already occurred. And it's a gift that God gives to us. Paul writes here and says, if you are in Christ, then put on baptism as a reminder of your transition to sonship. But the idea of putting on Christ as layers of meaning, beyond just like the wedding ring at the beginning, it also has significance in the way that we dress ourselves in behavior on a daily basis. I think about what Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. He uses the same phrase. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know, this idea of putting on Christ with our behavior and manner or way of life is akin to us getting dressed every day. You didn't have to decide if you were going to get dressed today because you live in society. You got up and got dressed. In the same way, as a Christ follower, when you get up, you are to put on a certain manner of life, a certain way of living because of who we are in Him. You know, I I, I didn't do this today because I didn't want to subject you to this sad perspective, but when I've taught on this concept before, I've actually gotten out my high school letter jacket, and I've put it on. Friends, there's nothing sadder than a 47-year-old man wearing his high school letter jacket, (laughs) because it reminds you that I'm wearing something that doesn't fit anymore. It's not who I am anymore. By God's grace, I've been matured past those points in life. And when you think about the life that you're called to put on, we are to put on a manner of life consistent with who we are in Christ. In the language of Colossians chapter 3, why are we patient? Because God is patient with us. And because God has been patient with us and God has given his patience as a fruit of the Spirit, we put on patience in the way that we deal with one another. Why do we love others? Because we've been loved by God. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, and God has placed the Spirit inside of us. So we put on love in the way that we relate to one another as an expression of who we currently are in Christ. Friends, Paul writes and says 
both in the outset of our relationship with him and in the ongoing outworking of that relationship, we are to put on Jesus. Put on like the wedding ring, the baptism to signify the beginning of our relationship with Christ. And put on through a manner of obedience in the way that we follow him and the way that we relate to others, this expression of our identity in him. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ, to reveal our sonship as we put on Christ through baptism. So a couple of applications connected to this. The first one that I would would think has to do with baptism. You know, some, as they have looked at this, uh, biblical commentators, as they have looked at this, have wanted to signify that baptism here is talking about something other than water baptism. And and their motivation to do that is well-founded because our salvation is not found in any tank of water. It is not found in the water. It is found through faith in Christ and what Jesus has done for us. But when Paul writes here in Galatians 3, I think that he is conflating the beginning of their faith in Christ with water baptism because it was kind of an unknown concept to him why someone would place their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and then not follow through with this expression of putting on the waters of baptism. It's somewhat of a foreign concept throughout our New Testament. Certainly there are extreme circumstances that prevent that from time to time, but it's not lifted up as the norm. And so as we gather here today, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ and you have not put on the waters of baptism, I would encourage you to do just that. If you've got questions about it, come to our baptism class on June the 27th, as we're going to be talking about that on Sunday morning. And you can find more details about that at wildwoodchurch.org slash baptism. And you can just explore the claims of Christ about baptism at that place. Or if you explore it and and it resonates within your soul still, you could experience baptism with us here on August the 1st. Friends, baptism is not just something for children. It's something for all who have followed Christ. It's a gift that God has given us. We are to put on the waters of baptism as we are reminded of our sonship in Him. So one of the applications is for baptism. But, but a second application is to just go ahead and continue. When you get up every day, just as you put on clothes to live life in society, so put on Christ and have Him be the way that influences your life and manner of way you relate to others. So we put on Christ in baptism. But there's a third point that we need to see inside of these, these verses. And that is this, that there are no second-class sons. Again, if we are all sons of God, if we have placed our faith in Christ, does God have a scorecard where some are on the in and some are on the outs? You might have an experience in your family where there is someone in your family who is the favored son or daughter, and then there is you. Maybe that's some of you. There's at least three chuckles in the room. See, it's possible that you have experienced in your family dynamic some that are on the inside and some that are on the outside. But when it comes to our connection to God in Christ, there are not second-class sons, but we all have direct access to Him. We see that in verse 28, one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Galatians. Hopefully when we're done today, you'll understand it a little more. 
But in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes and says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul mentions a number of different criteria by which people might be ranked. And he, and he says that all, regardless of those different criteria, find a oneness in Christ. That those distinctions are of no spiritual value in Jesus. Now, why would he mention these things? Well, one of the reasons why I think that he mentions these three things has to do with the fact uh, of what the Pharisees would pray. Remember, in Galatia, Paul was opposed by a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers would oppose Paul by telling everyone that they needed to become a Jew first before they could rightly be connected to God. Well, a number of those Judaizers were Pharisees. Paul himself, before he came to Christ, was a Pharisee. And Pharisees had a prayer that they would pray. You know what that prayer was? That prayer went something like this. God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. And God, thank you that I am not a slave. And God, thank you that I am not a woman. This was something that they would pray on a regular basis. Now, when they would offer up that prayer, it's because they saw spiritual significance and spiritual priority in each of those statements. That it was better to be a Jew because they had better access to God. And it was better to be free because they had better access to God. I mean, look at the ways that he was blessing them. And it was better to be a male because of some of the implications of the way that the old covenant law played out. And so they would make this prayer and they would say, it is spiritually significant for us to be Jewish, free males. Paul writes this letter to a church in Galatia that is no doubt made up of Gentile slaves, not all, but a number, slaves, and men and women. He writes to this diverse group and he wants them to know, friends, don't listen to what they're telling you in that old way. But in the new way of Jesus, there are no second-class sons. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are a slave or a free person, or, or whether you are a male or a female, you have direct access to God in Christ. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, what he meant by that was that there were a number of things that, that people of various backgrounds would share together if they had placed their faith and trust in Christ. Well, what were some of those things? Well, they would all experience the same forgiveness. Their sins would all be forgiven, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their gender. If they were in Christ, their sins were all forgiven the same. If they were in Christ, they all received the same Holy Spirit. It wasn't the good Holy Spirit went to people of Jewish background and the second-class Holy Spirit went to those of, of Gentile background. But it was... Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your gender, the same Holy Spirit would come to reside in everyone who was in Christ. The same life, mission, and purpose. Why are we here? What, what is life about? Well, that, that same mission and purpose is given to all who are in Christ, regardless of those differentiations. And even more so, all of them have the same access to God. 
it wasn't like they had to access God through another. You know, it happens to me sometimes as a pastor. Somebody will come up to me and say, hey, you're a pastor. You must have a direct connection to God. So would you pray for this for me? And when, when that happens, here's how I translate that, just for you to know. I translate, it is a privilege to pray with you. And it is an honor to pray with you. And I want to pray with you. But know that me praying it doesn't mean that God's going to hear it and he rejected it from you. Because all of us have the same access to God if we are in Christ. See, this is what Paul was saying. He was saying that this oneness in Christ creates this, this, this spiritual status and blessing that all of us share together, regardless of these other components. Now, this is important for us to see because when we look at this verse again and we see Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you know, those are things that the world still wants to divide over, right? This is a 2,000-year-old letter talking about divisions about ethnicity and talking about divisions based on socioeconomic status and talking about divisions based on gender. Our world is ripe and full of those kinds of divisions. But you know how our world tries to solve those divisions? Our world tries to solve those divisions by picking one and elevating it. The way that we solve this division is we say, if if men have screwed it up, then the women need to be in charge. Or that if the Jews have screwed it up, then the Gentiles need to be in charge. Or whatever the ethnicity of the day is, black, white, whatever it might be. Or if the the free people have screwed it up, then put the slaves in charge. But the unity that is talked about in this passage is not found by elevating one of those groups. It's found in elevating who? Jesus, right? Isn't that amazing? That it's possible for us to find unity, not in our differences, but unity in the one who can unite. Unity in Christ himself. And that's what we see. They don't find unity anywhere until we are in Christ Jesus. We are all one in him. Now, when we are one in Christ, here's something else that's important for us to remember. We are still people that have an ethnicity, right? We are still people that have a socioeconomic status. We are still people who have a gender. Those things have not gone away. They still exist, but they're just of no spiritual significance. If we fail to understand that principle, we'll fail to understand this passage. This passage is not saying that it's not okay for there to be any differentiation of gender roles. Paul will talk about that in a number of different places, both in the home and in the church. It's not that that principle is not still found in the Scripture. It's just saying here in this, in this passage that it doesn't give us any greater access to God, that we all have access to Him. Now, a way for us to remember that a little bit is to think about a band. Now, I've, uh, maybe I'm just longing for OU football this fall. Um, I, I probably am. I definitely am. Uh, but I'm also, for whatever reason, just, I just miss the band, right? When you, when you watch a game on TV, you can see the game, but you miss the other stuff. And, and as an OU grad, I just, I, I love watching the pride out on the field. Um, now, here's the thing. As a pastor in Norman, I've seen a number of different s- students who have come through Wildwood and have participated in the pride of Oklahoma. 
always, if I know somebody who's in the pride, when I go to a game, I am looking for that student. But do you know how many of those students I've ever actually seen on the field? Zero. And that's by design. It's not by my design. I'm looking for them. It's by the design of the band. They wrap themselves in the crimson and cream so that they can be one and receive the same ovation together. Now, you think about that. Underneath that uniform, there's some differences. Some are still men. Some are women. Some are playing a flute. Some are playing the tuba. Some are freshmen. Some are seniors. There are still some differences that are underneath, but they are wrapped in the robe of the crimson and cream, and they become a part of the same band. And friends, when we think about the implications of this passage, if we are in Christ, we have been wrapped in the crimson robe of Christ. And though some of us will play the flute and some of us will play the drum, some of us will have one set of circumstances that define our lives and others will have another. Friends, we all receive the same spiritual access and inheritance from God. And that's the point. So a couple of thoughts to conclude. The first one, if we are one in Christ, then that is a reminder again that there are no second-class sons. Therefore, as we relate to one another in the church, we do not relate to one another and tear each other down in any way. There are no second-class members of the church. But we deal with each other with respect and kindness as recipients of the same promise of God. And the second thing, just know that God is glorified through our diversity. He's glorified through our diversity. He's glorified that his church is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's glorified by the fact that there are people who are going to make different amounts of money in this life that are a part of his same family. You can't buy your way in, and you can't be too poor to not make it. And friends, it doesn't matter what gender you are. In Christ, we have an opportunity to be connected to God, the Son, an heir according to the promise. Now, in this new way, we have seen the blessing of being connected to God in Christ. I want to conclude today with this quote from John Stott. He says, So then conversion relates me to God, to man, and to history. It enables me to answer the most basic of all human questions. Who am I? And to say, in Christ, I am a son of God. In Christ, I am united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, and future. In Christ, I discovered my identity. In Christ, I find my feet. In Christ, I have come home. Friends, as you leave this place, as you prepare to put on actions to relate to others, you need to ask this question. Who are you? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are a son of the living God. He is your heavenly father, and it makes all the difference in the world. Father God, thank you so much for just the opportunity to open your word and to study it today. I thank you for the encouragement that we have seen there, and thank you for this amazing grace that has taken us from sinners to sons and made us heirs according to the promise. May we live in light of that. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.